Hi, I'm Nicole Breeden. And I'm Kira Brekurek. And you're listening to ProPrac, a podcast where we explore the professional practice of artists and hear their stories. Today we have with us in the studio Sarah Lindsay. Sarah Lindsay is a Melbourne-based artist, curator and educator. Sarah worked as a weaver at the Victorian Tapestry Workshop, now the Australian Tapestry Workshop, from its foundation in 1976 until 1990 when she moved to Tasmania to teach at the Tasmanian School of Art. From 1995 to 1998, Sarah was employed as a curator at the Tasmania Museum and Art Gallery whilst making significant developments in her studio practice and managing several freelance curatorial projects. Returning to Melbourne in 2000, she undertook a Master of Fine Arts at RMIT and from 2007 to 2013 was employed as production manager at the ATW. Her work has been exhibited nationally and internationally in solo and group exhibitions. Sarah has won numerous awards, including an Australia Council Fellowship in 1995, and her tapestries are represented in many major public collections across Australia. Since 2013, she has mentored a group of refugee women from Myanmar. This work has led to her involvement with an organisation in Lisbon, which provides textile skills development and social support to elderly people. Thanks so much for joining us in the studio today, Sarah. I'm really happy to be here and to contribute to this um, program. Uh, I'll just begin by telling you a bit about my um, childhood, I think. Please, please do. I I grew up in Oxford in England. I was born in Oxford in the UK. Mm -hmm. Um, My parents were both medical, doctor and a nurse. And um, but they were both really good with their hands. So my dad was very much a carp- a carpenter and had you know his man's shed. And my mum was very much someone of that generation who sewed all our clothes, knitted all our clothes, painted the walls. Mm-hmm. Every year she'd make you know new loose covers for the winter and the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, amazing, really. And I had. I had, I still have two brothers, uh, neither are involved in the arts, but they've always been very supportive of me. And at school, um, I loved languages, that's what I was good at, and geography. So I did French, German, Latin. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think I was really always interested in other places and other people, which has very much fed into my life ever since. And... uh, I was also taught by my mother, my mother to sew and from quite an early age I was sewing my own clothes and I even have a tiny little sort of handkerchief um, sort of cloth container that I made when I was about four, I think, wow. and I've still got that in the cutest fabric wow. you wouldn't believe. So that was just a big part of existence and, you know, it's quite a long time ago. We mm-hmm. didn't have all the shops and things that we have now. And I had a very happy childhood. We spent a lot of time outside. Uh, We spent a lot of holidays walking in the Lake District. That's where my dad came from. And he was a doctor and the surgery was in the house. So we had really nice summer summer and Easter holidays just to get out of the house. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure my parents had their issues, but for me, it was a happy childhood. I feel very lucky to be able to say that. Um, But a huge change happened in 1966 because they decided to migrate to Australia. And um, even though that was massive and I was becoming much more independent in Oxford, it's a really interesting city to grow up in. Um, I was wearing my black, you know, (laughs) 
oil skin beaten yeah. jacket yeah. and all of that and just maybe puffed on a bit of weed or something. Um, <laughs> 15. Uh, so it was a huge wrench to leave. But on the other hand, it was a huge adventure, just a huge adventure. And um, it was early enough to travel by boat. And we were ten pound poms. Although mm. I discovered from my brother the other day, he was he was sixteen, so he paid ten pounds. But my myself and my younger brother were uh, free free. Oh. <laughs> and so we came out on a boat and stopped at all these you know fascinating places along the way, and um, ended up in rural Victoria, which is a bit of a shock. Yeah. <laughs> Whereabouts? Um, Mafra. And then we moved to um, a bit closer to the city. We went to um, Berwick and it was quite, um, oh, it was extraordinary really. My my mum and dad just bought this house. They liked this little town and they'd gone into the chemist and said, did they need a doctor? And they said, yeah, we're desperate for one. They bought this little house and they put up the sort of brass plate and turned the granny flat into, which had been the garage, into a surgery. Wow. And she she helped him for a while, and then and you know thirty five years later, was sold as a you know going practice. Wow. And, and Dad just um, loved being Australia. He really loved the breadth of medicine he could practice. So in the anaesthetics and delivered twenty million babies, and he was a good old fashioned GP, a really mm. nice man, mm. really nice man. Um, so anyway, that, so I finished um, finished school and got into um, Monash to do languages. And at that point, all I wanted to do was actually go back to England. And it was in the air. You know, young people were going on the boat back mm. to England and then doing the hippie trail to India or wherever. So I went with one of my oldest friends, well, my best friend from school, and she was the artist. You know, she did art at school and she drew. And so we went for two years um, back to Europe and we did the hippie trail down to Morocco and which is and Ibiza, which is very different to what it is now. Oh, and we went to loads of galleries and we lived really simply. And then we'd go back to England and do really mundane jobs just to or I'd do a lot of sort of nannying for my cousin and things like that. But we had a great time. But after a couple of years I just was missing my family and um I thought, No, I actually do really want us to study but I didn't want to go back to Monash and do languages. And I'd met these really interesting German women in Ibiza who were making these amazing clothes from um, sort of recycled Victorian underwear. It sounds a bit sort of bizarre, but they were quite, I mean, a bit picnic at Henning Rock-ish, really, mm. but sort of a bit more edgy than that. And I thought, oh, I wouldn't mind doing something like that, you know, like that. I was never interested in fashion as in the catwalk, all of that. So anyway, I came back to Melbourne and I got into RMIT, not quite sure how, but I did <laughs> to do fashion design. And I think they thought, oh, well, you can sew because I certainly couldn't draw mm. or I had, not, had no folio of drawings. Anyway, I got in there and I did um, my three years there and it wasn't so easy the first two years. I felt it was incredibly conservative and restrictive and mm-hmm. designing, you know, uniforms for the bank or the races or oh, whatever. Wow. I don't remember. And I was there in my kind of hippie Kensington market <laughs> clothes, <laughs> my Moroccan jalaba. Um, and I just... But anyway, in my third year, I had a really, really amazing lecturer 
um, called Leonard Legg and he was a really intelligent man, really interested in art. Um, he'd grown up in Nil, he'd gone to Paris just after the war to train uh, under Couturier who was there when the um, German occupation um, was there and he tells this amazing story of how the women started to wear their hair really high and their shoes really high and the big shoulder pads to overcome the sense that they were being taken over by the Germans. It's an, this amazing interview somewhere which I often think I must get hold of that. So mm. he was a really fascinating man and he loved my slightly wacky approach to things. So in my third year I spent the whole time um, throwing paint at fabric on the washing line and then making them into strange concoctions and crocheting and spinning yarn. It was the 70s, remember, mm -hmm. but it's sort of back a bit, really. Mm -hmm. And um, I just loved drawing. I just had a couple of really amazing teachers at RMIT and I loved uh, life drawing and I loved then translating that into fashion illustration and there were a few people that I followed that I thought their illustration work was ex quite extraordinary um, and quite loose and very beautiful. So I ended up doing quite well. Very, well, I topped the class. I did, you know, I did well and yeah. I loved it. And But I didn't want to um, go into the sort of rag trade. So my closest friends did and they did the Flinders Lane thing. Um, so I did the classic thing of I'll do a teaching degree, give myself a bit of breathing time. Mm -hmm. And that year was actually fantastic because, again, it was in the 70s and you could write, basically write your own program. And it was at Melbourne State College just for one year. And I taught two days a week at um, a community school. And I brought kids home to my garden to do batik dye. I mean, you would never be able to do that sort of thing now. Uh, but it was terrific. And then I did a whole lot of uh, electives, very practical electives. Didn't learn anything about how you would form a lesson plan or anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I did painting and sculpture and ceramics and drama. And Amazing. so it was a really great year. But more importantly, I enrolled at the Melbourne College of Textiles uh, one day a week and I was allowed to have that um, accepted into my degree and learnt how to weave. And I had this amazing teacher who was Latvian, master weaver, Lilia Dukes, and it was the first sort of sense that I had that actually that's a profession. Mm -hmm. It's not a hobby it's a profession, it's a revered profession and she's this incredibly skilled woman that was really respected in her culture. So that kind of lodged itself in my brain. And the other thing that happened that was really critical at that time was that I attended for three years in a row this the South Australian Craft Association or the Craft Society of South Australia ran these sort of craft camps in um, out of uh, Adelaide at um, called this Tatachila um, place, which is a Lutheran camp, I think. And they, like all those sort of camps, you know, they, they brought in a selection of uh, lecturers from often international, mm -hmm. often local. And one of my teachers, my illustration teacher at RMIT, the first time said, oh, I'm going to teach at one of these camps. And I think you'd really like it. I'll pay your fees. You wow. come along and be my assistant. 
And um, as soon as I got there, she said, oh, you know, you're fine. Just, I'm fine. You just go off and, you know, explore. So that was huge. And the first one I went to was actually run by Sue Walker, Mm -hmm. who ended up being the director of the Tapestry Workshop, Mm -hmm. Australian Tapestry Workshop. And it was off loom weaving. And I spent the whole week or whatever it was camping and unravelling bits of rope and hessian and making, you know, these sculptural things. (laughs) But I loved it and I loved the rawness of it. And then I think another year I did Batik and I'd met these incredible uh, artists, Tinica and Paula Dolphus, who had just come back to Australia after living in Japan and Indonesia. So meeting them was huge in relation to Japan because I was already starting to think, oh, I'd like to go there. My brother brother had studied Japanese and the uh, library at the State College was full of extraordinary books on kimono and I was really interested in the idea of the kimono as um, clothing but as ceremonial clothing, as art, um, not fashion, that was timeless and also that there are all these processes involved in making different kinds, so Mm -hmm. stenciled, woven, hand-painted... Um, and incredibly revered objects. So that was really interesting. And then the third year I did tapestry weaving with a woman called Belinda Ramson and she was actually from New Zealand, I think originally was a painter, and she had been to Edinburgh and I'm not sure, I think she studied at the art school there maybe very briefly, but she certainly ended up working at the... Dovecot or the Edinburgh Tapestry Company Um, and I just took to tapestry weaving. It sort of encompassed drawing, painting, sculpture, textiles and materiality and it suited my personality and that sort of slowly building things up in that rhythmical way. So that was huge and then the following year I got a job teaching Um, just general art at University High School and I sort of kind of managed, (laughs) you know, I was very quiet. (laughs) And um, But by the middle of the year, um, the tapestry workshop was set up and maybe by even by about April they called for people to take part in a training selection workshop and so I was accepted into that and over four weekends over an eight-week period... Uh, we would go for the weekend and learn from Belinda. Mm-hmm. Um, and then during those two weeks, we had to go home and make a tapestry based on what we learned. Wow. And at the end of that period, I was offered a, a, a job at that tapestry workshop. Mm-hmm. So that was just massive for me. And I felt like I'd landed in heaven. Mm-hmm. And five of us started, um, you know, smart young women who didn't have the weight of history on us. A couple had done a bit of tapestry before, but really we were um, employed on the basis of our um, visual art skills and, and drawing skills and then our sort of facility to pick up the medium. Mm-hmm. And I had no problem. It just came to me really, really, really easily. And I like drawing, so that, that worked out okay. So I stayed at the workshop for uh, actually 14 years And 12 of those years I was a weaver and, you know, progressed from being 
kind of just a weaver to the senior weaver. But in some ways, uh, to talk about being a weaver in those hierarchical terms is exactly what it wasn't about, mm. really. When mm. I reflect back, I was going to talk about this sort of later, really, but when I reflect back on my experience of being a weaver at the tapestry workshop, uh, there were two aspects, really, and one of them was absolutely about the collaboration with the other weavers. I mean, in some ways, the collaboration with the artist. Sometimes I think collaboration is a good word and sometimes I don't think it's quite right because you're certainly interpreting. But the sharing that you then have with your fellow weavers is quite a different experience and mm. an to me an incredibly important one mm. that's fed through into other things that I've done. And then, of course... Um, the different artists that I did actually work with and I was writing down a bit of a list here and I thought possibly the three really important to me were Guy Stewart was the first person I worked with and again he had had, he spent his childhood in Japan and his drawing was is extraordinary and just a lovely man and he was really terrific to work with. And then another really, really important person and I wove a whole tapestry based on a design of hers almost exclusively with a tiny bit of help was Helen Wardsley. So that was pretty extraordinary to have contact with her individually for over a year and learn about her practice and just have the kind of the power of that personality and someone who knows so much about and has experienced so much in the art world. And then I've put Leslie Dumbrell because, again, she was early on mm. and... Um, you know, I really want to emphasise the women that have had a huge influence on me, although men have too, but um, I think she was very important. Um, so I love that, and I think I was very good at my job because I did immerse myself in the practice of those artists. So the downside of that is that I found it very difficult to work out quite what my practice might be be and if mm. indeed I ha did have a practice mm -hmm. and if indeed I had anything to say so I did make work and I did make drawings um, and I used to take blocks of time off to do that because to think of that or to get off the sofa mm. <laughs> once you got home from a really intense day of working at the tapestry workshop and one of my great banes in life is people saying to me, oh, you must be so patient, or, oh, it must be so meditative. <laughs> and <laughs> it's, it's just none of those things. It's really, really concentrated, really, really intense and physically demanding yeah. mm -hmm. work, mm -hmm. and often at the end of the day, and a huge responsibility because people yeah. are paying thousands of dollars for this work and then working, you know, sitting as you two are there mm -hmm. so close to somebody mm -hmm. all day is um so yes, I used to pretty much hit the <laughs> the couch oh, when yeah. I got, got home. But you know, I was determined to keep drawing and and I did a lot of sort of exploration with materials. Um and one of the really important things that happened was that in 1981, I received a, a travel grant and an Australia Council sort of education grant to go to Japan 
to, to study at a school there. And um, one day a man had walked, or we were told that this um, man who ran a school in Kyoto would be visiting, but at the weekend. And would anybody like to stay back um, to show him around? And of course, my hand went up within two seconds. And so I met him and again, this just incredible man. And he said, come to my school, we can just develop a special study program for you. So I did that for three months and I studied. I wanted to study something traditional as a way of immersing myself into the culture. Mm. So I studied kasuri weaving, which is a resist dyeing process, which um, in Indonesia is ICAT, and we probably know it better in Australia as ICAT, but a resist dyeing. And of course, as everything in Japan is, is in, can be incredibly simple or incredibly complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was just the most extraordinary and life-changing experience to go to Japan and um, and that was, you know, emails, no mobile phones, uh, so quite a huge cultural change mm-hmm. and my mm-hmm. language was basic. Yep. Um, but I just felt that I'd landed in the right place for me and my makeup and my mm. interests. And it did really change my way of looking at things. In some ways, that cliched way of looking at things, I started to simplify things mm-hmm. down. I felt like I could see things more clearly. And mm. that really helped actually in my work at the Tapestry Workshop because often one of the big things is you're presented with these quite complex designs and you have to you have to pull out what's important. So you can't weave everything and you shouldn't weave everything. So you have to have a really analytical and critical eye to A, understand the drawing really importantly, the structural drawing, and then decide what information is important to keep Mm. and what can be left out. Because so much of the texture and kind of almost mark-making presence is there in the weave already it's quite ribby Mm -hmm. and so yeah so that was really huge and I just really loved it so that yeah that was huge and all the way through um the tapestry workshop I was I taught so if there were trainees I was my job so I always I've always loved teaching and I've always loved exchanging information and you know my mum was one of those people that always was cutting things out of the newspaper and sending them to, to me just it's always been an important part of sort of existence which is why I love Instagram so mm. it feels like mm. that of it mm. to me now and and so um, in the best possible sense and I know social media is fraught but the best possible sense is absolutely about share about mm. sharing mm-hmm. which I love mm. um, now I had a daughter she was born in 1987 I, I had a year off, and during that time I actually did do a, a weaving commission. Um, and then I had to go back to work, so Noni went into Christ pretty early on. So uh, that's just how it is. Um, but she was a pretty easy baby and a, a very, very wanted child. She's quite hard to come by, so has been one of the greatest um, joys of my life, still is. And in 1991, um, or maybe 1990, I went to visit my brother who was living in Hobart and I knew someone who was working at the art school and I thought, oh, I'll just go and say hello. And I went into this amazing building 
and went into this amazing, we- it's a weaving department, it wasn't textiles, it was absolutely a weaving department. Wow. And it had started off in Hobart, there'd been an organisation called, I think, Sesheron House that had been set up by some weavers and they'd received various fundings over time and they'd brought all these incredible looms and then it had gone, maybe had gone to TAFE and then it was finally accepted into the art school. So uh, the year later, um, a job came up and they wanted someone to expand the weaving but still, in a sense, keep to weaving. Um, but because of my experience working with tapestry and that sort of almost the role of tapestry within fine art, or certainly I hate making those distinctions, but as an image-making mm. process rather than a cloth making mm. process mm-hmm. so um anyway I jumped off the height and it was the first job I'd ever really seen advertised where I thought oh you know this looks good this could mm. be interesting mm. um so I did jump off the high diving board and went down with Noni to Hobart how long were you teaching there for? yeah so I was teaching there for sadly a relatively short time so I thought well this is the rest of my life and mm. I was planning my sabbatical <laughs> <laughs> In fact, it was only a contract job mm. and it was two and a half years because it was sort of half a year by the time they decided to employ me. And towards the end of the second year, they decided to close the department. Oh. So it was the beginning of the really big cuts in mm. education and they already had a textile department in Launceston, which was more surface design orientated. So there was a bartering thing. So... Uh, Hobart kept printmaking, thank God, because it's such mm. an amazing department. Mm. And physically, that's the space is just unbelievable. I just saw it a couple of weeks ago. And um, Launceston kept mm. textiles. So, but, so it was very sad for Hobart and very sad for the art school. But things just kind of kept moving for me. And I'll actually never forget... Pat Brassington saying to me, when things started to fall apart, that was falling apart, the relationship completely fell apart, Um, she just looked at me straight in the eye and said, you'll be all right. I've just never forgotten it. I was. And somehow the best years kind of came. And, I mean, one of the best things that happened was I got an Australia Council Fellowship. So I then had a couple of years where, and I also got a job at the Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery as a curator because they got special funding for, they could, it was when there was a still an Australia Council Visual Arts Board and Crafts mm. Board. So there was this special funding um, for contemporary craft. So organisations were applying for funding or contemporary crafts, so either to put on exhibitions or to add to collections. So um, the Tasmanian Museum Art Gallery got that and they decided to split it into three and having someone who oversaw the the whole thing three days a week and was responsible for some discipline, someone um, textiles, someone design, and the other one was glass and ceramics, I think. Mm. So... Um, I was offered the the big job and declined it because I got the fellowship. 
So I just took on the textiles and someone else got the epic job and they actually did a much better job than I mm. would ever have done. Mm. Um, so that was fantastic. So I had this sort of foray into, you know, a proper museum and art gallery oh. and worked with a collection and put on a big um, show called The Meaning of Dress. Mm. And I looked at structure, the idea of structure of identity and was able to use incredible waistcoats and petticoats and crinolines and things like that and hat, sort of strange hats from the um, the collection. And then I brought in some contemporary artists as well. And we had no money for catalogue, so I did the catalogue on my little laser printer that I bought <laughs> through my Australia Council <laughs> funding. And it was the beginning of that sort of push into digital technology mm-hmm. So that was also part of my submission that I'd started making photocopies of all these uh, samples that I was weaving and then manipulating the photocopies. To, mm. And then I started doing that with the computer. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a pretty interesting period, really. Yeah. It was an amazing period. And I certainly developed, I, you know, once I got to Hobart and... I experienced life in art school, but again, I'll talk to that. Anyway, my work just took off mm-hmm. and I found out that I knew I had something to say mm-hmm. and I talked about it. And then I got a, a residency in Bosozzo in Italy and Noni and I went off to Europe for six months and came back by um, Japan. And it was just, and I did a lot of freelance curatorial work for the Salamanca Arts Centre, mm-hmm. all sort of conceptual textile base people think it's just happened but in fact (laughs) you know we were teaching all sorts of theory in the art schools in the early 90s Mm. and I think it's really thank goodness having a real impact yeah Mm -hmm. Um, so it was a really exciting time for me and um, but it did come to a point where I thought I was just um, giving 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 and wasn't quite getting enough intellectual stimulation back from that very small community. So I enrolled in a master's at RMIT um, part-time, mm-hmm. uh, not part-time as a distance student, but part-time mm-hmm. also, mm-hmm. Um, with a painting supervisor and a printmaking supervisor. Um, Leslie Tuxbury was my main supervisor. She's just fantastic. And um, then a year later or six months later, moved back to Melbourne, partly because of family reasons and um, partly because the tapestry workshop offered me a job to uh, project manage a big series of tapestries. And that actually um, fell apart because I was so adamant that I would continue with my master's. And also my mother was extremely unwell psychologically mm. and I needed my... Mm. The master's was absolutely my... Sp- my space. Mm-hmm. And I was a single mother, so it was a lot going on. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a lot. So in the end, someone else took on the job, and I stayed for a year as education officer and resource manager or, or something. Um, and then at the end of that, uh, that job finished, and I had to kind of scrape around for work and did office work and you know what we all do, mm-hmm. whatever. And then I got a job, but um, I completed my MA. And um, I taught at Monash for a little while. Same thing, though, the, the department being wound up. Mm. Um, and then I was um, 
of a job back at the tapestry workshop as a production manager mm-hmm. and my um, her, the the director then was Susie Shears and she was terrific and really kind of recognized all the experience I'd had um, particularly when I'd been in Tasmania um, and I stayed there till 2007 till 2012 but along the way I started making work um, so for many, for about 15 years, I made work that was really to do with the migrant condition. And it was very much prompted by going to what would have been described then and maybe still is the most English estates. And I was 40 when I went. And my mother was 40 when she came to Australia. And, you know, there was a lot of discussion then about m- the migrant and the diaspora. I mean, it's so different now, and I there's no way I could make that kind of work now with the whole refugee issues. It seemed like I was in such a privileged <laughs> state. But at, at the time, it was what was being discussed and talked about, and um, there was a lot written about it and a lot of... Um, yeah, it's a solid writing. And I used black and white gingham, so people know me as this sort of the gingham lady. <laughs> it's like and it came, band. Yeah, <laughs> it came out of originally doing a sort of rag tapestry, um, using up this, you know, like a, a quilt, so using up the scraps from mm-hmm. the rag bag. And mm-hmm. I, I responded most to the gingham because the contrast of the the black and white created this shimmering effect and I really love that sort of way it activated this the surface like a reduced version of it is this a white noise mm. um, and then I just started collecting bolts and bolts and bolts of mm. gingham mm-hmm. in all different sizes but it was quite hard to get mm-hmm. so a big part of my practice is the search yep so um, it's been gingham, it's been cinnamon sticks, it's been rubber bands or whatever. I love that sort of tension yep. of the search. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, I made a huge amount of work and it was very well received and shown a lot and uh, overseas and bought by a lot of the big um, galleries. Uh, so it was pretty amazing time, actually. I'd say it was a 15 to 20-year period, mm-hmm. where, although I was in my small way, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit of a big fish in a little <laughs> little yeah. sea. And there were a whole lot of us, which, again, I can refer to later, uh, women, I have to say, in similar situations with young families working in and out of art schools, developing a lot of theory to particular people, um, Diana Wood Conroy and Kay Lawrence, writing a lot, and they Mm -hmm. both still do, Mm. particularly Kay, who's remained a very good friend of mine and huge supporter. Um, So it was a very dynamic and interesting time. Mm. We were in a lot of shows together and we'd, from all over Australia, you know, Kay lives in Adelaide, Diana lives in, it was Wollongong then, I think, people from Canberra, from Sydney. And then there would be all these events that we'd, I mean, happens to people all the time, but mm-hmm. it was a particularly intense time for me mm-hmm. then. And a lot of those people are still practising, but not mm-hmm. all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, some of them particularly have done amazing things and, and in institutions, kept mm-hmm. kept textile 
um, courses alive. Not, I mean, they're going now yeah. for a long time because of their personalities yep. and their. Um, I sadly didn't have quite that amount of clout, but um, <laughs> I did my bit. Um, and I guess after the gingham work, um, I stopped that when I was doing my masters because I thought, well, it's becoming a bit habitual. Mm-hmm. I probably need to start thinking about something else. And my um, master's work was called Positioning the Stripe. So I looked at the role of stripe, both sort of formally and informally, in a range, you know, in the history of art and medieval practice and sculpture and Jean Davis paintings, where mm. you were actually forced to, you know, walk along the length of the painting to actually mm. see it. it was too big to just take in. And, mm. and my last body of work was very much influenced by. Um, his his work and then um, so I'm still doing stripes mm-hmm. <laughs> We're, wearing stripes um, I've just won a little award for a little stripe drawing <laughs> line drawing um, so I often laugh and say I just do stripes and circles and then I put this um, highfalutin language <laughs> with it to give it some emotional but I guess another really big thing that happened was uh, I was approached by, uh, this was in about 2003, I think, Susie Atwell, who was, uh, um, works at RMIT and has done a lot of really terrific curatorial work. And she was commissioned or um, contracted to be a curator for the Tamworth. was a biennial then, textile biennial. It's a triennial now. And she uh, developed the idea of uh, putting together a show that talked about time. It was called The Matter of Time. And I didn't have any existing work. The idea was to make a new work. And um, by this time, I was spending a lot of time with my mum. And she grew up in Sri Lanka. She was a colonial child. Her father was a tea planter. She had a really, really acute uh, depression, had been almost successful in suicide attempts and she came to my house regularly when she wasn't in hospital and the thing she liked talking about the most and I'm I'm actually quite happy to talk about this I think it's important mm-hmm. uh, mental health issues and um, I don't think I'm revealing too much she as many people do, particularly to as they get older, like talking about her childhood. And she had a very happy young childhood in Sri Lanka. Um, and she, we grew up with stories about it. And then sadly her father died very young at 40 and um, in the, from a massive heart attack right in the, amongst the tea bushes. Mm-hmm. And they, although she'd already started to be sent back to, you know, this brutal thing of being sent to boarding school when they were very young. So she was already in boarding school, so never went back to Sri Lanka after that. But again, it was just always... There's so many anecdotes in my family and amongst my siblings about stories mum had told about growing up in Sri Lanka. So we talked a lot about that. And um, so when Susie asked me to make a work about time, I decided to make a work about mum. And I made a work that was about 30, 40 centimetres high by about four and a half, five metres wide, mm. long, long. And so it was essentially a time timeline. Mm. And I made this sort of block. It was called Cinnamon and Roses. So the cinnamon was clearly Sri Lanka. 
and there's roses. She's a classic English woman with the rose garden mm-hmm. pruned to the <laughs> degree. Um, and so I had to collect the cinnamon sticks and find the right ones that wouldn't disintegrate when you pierce them to a certain position. I collected piles and piles of rose petals from the botanical gardens, from my walks, and made this sort of kind of construction. And then I wove, you understand this, um, Nicole, I wove it sort of on its vertically mm-hmm. so it's a long thin mm-hmm. strip mm-hmm. that you could wind around and then you turn it around and you hang it sideways mm-hmm. and I used um I used muslin so I saw that as a material of the of the tropics and very I'd had a lot of uh, photos of my grandmother in the tropics wearing these fine muslin dresses striped and I ended up making a whole lot of drawings based on those um, and I dyed the muslin with tea, um, so that was a stronger dye. So when she was still in Sri Lanka and just faded, as A, she get, got older, and B, just about the passing of time and mm. about sort of ephemerality. Mm. And I marked the birth marriages and sort of deaths within our family with different sort of graphic elements, and the deaths were definitely marked by these the turmeric dyed stripes um, so it was really just the death of her father and the death of my father then and they've faded with time because it's not a stable mm. dye so and I think it was sort of also when people were starting to be really interested in the idea of the sorts of social aspects of making art and engagement with that aspect mm. rather than the sort of high art pinnacled mm whatever mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not speaking very well about that but mm-hmm. you know what I mean that mm-hmm. so there was a real interest in that piece and I'd never been to Sri Lanka and even though we came you know, I've been backwards and forwards to England three three times on boats we never stopped at Colombo mm. even though my partner did when he came back from England he was a child so in 2005 I got um um Australia Council funding to go to Sri Lanka and uh, also go to the V&A Museum and study the South mm. Asian textile collection. Mm. And then we went to Sri Lanka probably with my daughter for maybe 10 days and it felt like we were there for six weeks. It was just one mm. of those trips where the most amazing things happened. You just fell from one connection to another to another experience and it was just extraordinary and what was even was most extraordinary really was going to my grandfather's grave mm. um, and just uh, I was talking to my cousin because she had the same experience just buckets and buckets and buckets and buckets of tears mm. coming out of me because mm. suddenly I understood my mum mm. I understood my dad really well he was a Scot we went to Scotland every year but it was something about my mum I never quite understood because mm. in a sense there was something slightly superior Mm. but incredibly down to earth at the same time and I never quite really got it and then suddenly I got the colonial life and Mm. um, so it was pretty extraordinary and then I came back and I had this huge studio in exchange for working in a friend's shop a couple of days a week at the studio above the shop and I made just masses and masses of drawings and masses of collages and masses of samples 
so I didn't want to make any big finished work. I mean, that would mm. tapestry, you know how long it takes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just led into, just fed me for many years mm. in some ways, sort of still does. But I, w- I went from working, becoming, uh, working very much about ideas around um, my family to becoming more and more interested in a slightly more objective view of trade of trade Mm -hmm. so I made a whole lot of works that I call cargo and I made a big drawing called trade it was trade what's it called china tea cinnamon ticking so I started talking more about those elements in the work and it became less biographical but I did make a big work, another big work called Cargo, which I wove a blue and white plate um, that had been my grandmother's and she would have bought that as part of the Asian trade route when she yeah. was setting up home in Sri Lanka mm. and then my mum had it and then I had it and it's quite broken so mm. it was also a sort of act of reparation, reparation? Mm. reparation to reweave it and kind of pull that family, particularly the um, female line, kind mm. of solidify it and yeah. bring it together. And I placed that in a whole lot of objects. Um, so it was a in- big installation that took up quite a lot of space, but that was the, the main um, object in amongst cinnamon sticks and um, little woven tapestries. Mm. That's the last really major work probably mm-hmm. that I made. Mm-hmm. So you've already touched on um, a few challenges that you have um, had to overcome to continue your practice, but I was wondering if you could just elaborate a little bit further on the challenges that you've had to overcome. Yeah, I think just thinking through, because I've been thinking a bit about this over the weekend, that probably there there are two major challenges and they've been quite different. And one was certainly going and working at the art school in Hobart because I'd been through a fashion design degree so there was no really conceptual basis to that and it was, you know, good and it was. I'm glad to have done it. And then at the tapestry workshop, it was very... It's a production workshop. It was very much about making and even though I've always read a lot and been interested in ideas, I hadn't actually experienced that art school and theory environment and um, Hobart was the first school I think to introduce a master's program Mm. so when I first got there I was a bit overwhelmed by all the talking (laughs) (laughs) and so I'm quite was quite silent but thoughtful Uh, so that was it was actually huge and I mean to have left my partner behind and to take a small child and not exactly on a whim but it was it was quite and leave my family behind uh, but it actually turned out to be the best possible mm. thing. Uh, but it was, I found it pretty tough to begin with and thought, you know, what on earth have I done, you know, and can I do this and can I be the person I need to be mm. to actually do this job? But I learned quite fast, mm. really, um, and I read a lot and I went to a lot of, I went to all the, um, major crit sessions and lectures and things. And I thought, no, no, this is just a particular way of talking and, and thinking and I can I can do this. You know, I'm not super intelligent, but I'm in... I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm not, 
but I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I do understand this and I do understand what it's about. And not only that, I found it really interesting mm. and I think it really shifted something in my brain and the whole idea of have I got anything to say, what should I be making, suddenly the whole thing just fell into place and I yeah. thought, well, actually... I can make work about this. Mm-hmm. Um, I can reference this. I can think about this. So and so is talking about this, um, and it certainly it just was terrific. And mm. I met a whole lot of artists in Hobart that suddenly, you know, they again became my next tribe, yeah. and I felt that I could discuss things with them on the same level, and we were very supportive of each other, both male and fem- female artists, yeah. and it was terrific. Yeah. You um. You mentioned this earlier about the um, coming home from the tapestry workshop and the fatigue mm. that is involved. Mm. I'm just, and I remember the first time that I walked into the tapestry w- workshop and yeah. was just amazed at how physically taxing that yes. job yes. is and yeah. the process of weaving. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering if you could share anything about overcoming the the physical. Um, challenges that are associated with... Yeah, this is a really interesting one Mm. because in many ways I haven't overcome it. Mm. And for many years I was absolutely fine. And when I was doing my master's um, and a few other stressful things that were happening in my life, I was doing a sort of yoga tai chi three times a week and I was strong and I was weaving this big series for my master's. And then, that was about 2003, and then around about 2005, my back just started to give give way. And um, I think it was a mixture of lifting too much at the tapestry workshop, so not necessarily particularly the weaving, mm. um, having a, terif- a garden plot <laughs> and lifting, you know, too many bags of soil. And also my mother lifting her Mm. a lot. Mm. And I have got quite pronounced scoliosis, which had never, I'd never been particularly even aware of, except Mm. when I was dressmaking. I thought, oh, that hip's a bit flat and that one's Mm. much more rounded. And it just got quite uh, problematic and I went to see a neurosurgeon and... um, (laughs) And he really said, you know, stop weaving, stop gardening, all the things that I loved. Uh, Walk, walk, walk. Um, And I then went and had a big overseas trip and that was all fine. And I actually, somehow the pain did lessen and I walked a lot and tried not to carry things. I was away for about three months in New York and Lisbon and came back feeling pretty good. And then with a relatively short time um, doing household stuff, my back just got really bad again. And I actually had a complete ang- sort of, it wasn't a mental breakdown, but a sort of anxiety mm. breakdown, really. Just suffered from really, really acute anxiety. Mm. And... Um, I was, you know, I was sort of really, I spent about six weeks where I was either lying down on the sofa or walking for this projected amount of time he'd told Mm. me to do Mm -hmm. three times a day Mm. or walking up and down my corridor. I've got a long Victorian, just well, little house, but a long Victorian, walking just completely 
anxiety out, mm. you know, and for anyone who knows who's mm. been yeah. through that, mm. you know what that's about. Mm. Um, so that was absolutely terrifying. It was also absolutely terrifying because we've got a huge history of mental illness in my family. Mm. And with my mum, I'd always thought, when's it going to happen to me? Mm. Um, anyway, it did. My daughter um, was incredibly supportive. My brother was incredibly supportive. And I went to, you know, a psychology, pain psychologist. I saw acupuncturist and amazing osteopath who I still see. Mm-hmm. And my back really isn't any better and practice probably worse. Um, but I'm a mentally pretty strong, very strong actually, yeah. so I worked through that. But it meant that I could never go back to weaving big mm. things again. Mm. And in fact, probably for three or four years, I thought maybe it's over. Maybe I don't, I'm don't. i not going to be an artist anymore. Um, but I kept, you, you know, once you are, you, I mean, I was <laughs> talking to mm. Gosha this morning and um, you know, she's sort of adamant that it's you either are, you aren't. It's yeah. like how you exist in the world. Totally. It's how you mm-hmm. think and mm-hmm. um, you can't switch it off. No. And um, so I was finding it pretty hard to switch off, except I was going to more and more exhibitions mm-hmm. because I was walking. So mm. get up, what do you do? You need to walk. Yep. So what do you do to make walking work for you? You go to exhibitions. Go to something. And then I started a photographic project which I still do, mm-hmm. that's about being mobile and walking and seeing things and mm-hmm. observing them. Mm-hmm. So that was, you know, and it became more what, not what you can't do, what you what you can do. Mm. Yeah. And I started mentoring uh, this group of amazing refugee women from Myanmar. So that's seven years I've been working with them now. Mm-hmm. And so this will come into some other, the next question, I think. Yeah, I think. <laughs> um, next question. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, given that you've had such a journey, like what does a, what does a successful practice mean well, to you? Well, that's it. I mean, it's so interesting because I think it, um, that notion of success has really changed. And I think, you know, early on, you know, struggling through the workshop thinking, am I, am I really an artist? Have I really got something to say? And then finding, yes, I have, and being then included in all these exhibitions that became the big thing of, you know, oh, yes, they've selected me for this exhibition in Japan. Hey, wow, hey, I've won that prize in Japan. Yes, I'm going to, work's going to Frankfurt. That became the sort of driving force. I mean, we're still very much just make, getting, keep staying in the studio, making work and luckily being pick, picked up. But that was my idea of, of success, mm-hmm. not the money. I mean, I was always very realistic about the money. You know, people don't buy tapestries. And I had a couple of years where I sold big collections uh, to Tasmanian Museum Art Gallery. I sold a huge collection and National Gallery Australia, huge collection. So they were big years. They were, I mean, they were great. And... Um, but, yeah, I always knew I had to do other jobs to survive. But that's okay. It was mm-hmm. fine. You know, it was just I was a really interesting life. But I would say that particularly with this back injury, um, I've had to re- totally rethink all of that. And I think we're all rethinking all mm. of that, aren't we? I mean, mm-hmm. I feel very aware that that whole notion of the big gallery and it's so bound up in money and contacts and, mm. and I've never felt comfortable in that 
kind of mm. world mm-hmm. and was very associated with it in many ways, mm. the tapestry workshop, because, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of have to be. That's realistic. People have got to pay and they want big artists and mm. that's fine. Um, but I think I've always been interested in something much more on the ground um, and kind of quirky people, <laughs> quirky <laughs> people, interesting people, mm. into real individuals. Mm-hmm. That's been uh, sometimes to my... <laughs> Quite so good. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking again about that to Gosha this morning. We've both been very attracted yeah. to unusual people sometimes. Yeah. You get bitten, but um, that's still it. So I think that now that whole idea of working alongside other people, and even though I'm the sort of main mentor to the um, the the Karen, I mean they make the work, but I feel we're a team, and Noni's involved in that a sort of team of people that make things happen and go out into the world and mm-hmm. that's really good. And um, I, when I, I went last year to, I've been a few times to Portugal and last year I started working in Lisbon very um, loosely. It wasn't a formal arrangement with an organisation I came across, which uh, I won't even try and say it in Portuguese, but loosely translated. It, it says Granny went back to work. <laughs> And it's an organisation that was established by a young industrial designer, stroke product graphic designer, and she was really brought up by her grandmother, who was an incredibly outgoing, generous woman. And so she set up this organisation with a young man who's a psychologist and uh, to provide a a working meeting space for elderly Mm. people all under the umbrella of, of, textile, of textiles. And I just came across it in the sort of street opposite my favourite coffee shop. And it was so dynamic and so inclusive and so wild, so joyous. And and I started going there three or four afternoons a week and taught some weaving and, and I learned a bit from them. And uh, I just, and it followed on so well from working with the, Karen, so I'm interested in, and also with older older artists, particularly mm-hmm. women's artists and their role and how they're seen. And um, certainly this Lisbon organisation is old as the new young, is, you know, on mm-hmm. all their T-shirts <laughs> tattooed on some um, Susanna's arm. And that it? allowed me to, because it's so warm and embraced, I've never received so many cuddles and kisses <laughs> To then go back to my tiny little sort of studio and do my kind of cerebral, yep. very controlled, gentle work. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually going back there, both to Japan in a few weeks for two months and then back to Lisbon and I hope I'll be doing more work with them Yeah, mm. there. So to keep that, you know, though I, though I think that's what I've always needed. I'm quite, mm. I'm not as quiet as I used to be, but I, I like people and I like that sort of social mm-hmm. meeting mm-hmm. of people. Um, but I need that really quiet. I mean, it's reflective mm-hmm. of so mm-hmm. many of us, isn't it? Mm. That very quiet mm kind of gentle yeah. time you as well. Like recharge and then... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, hopefully I'll same. make work, but, you know, mm. just tiny little tapestries and yeah. little drawings yeah. and, um, yeah. Great. Yeah. 
Um, so what is a what is a typical week in, in the life well, of Sarah? Well, there's nothing like? so typical anymore. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there would have been typical weeks where, you know, I went to work. Yeah. I don't have to go to yeah. work anymore. <laughs> Thank goodness. I very, feel very, very lucky to be in that position. Um, look, a, t- a typical week is broken up by meetings with a few critical people mm-hmm. like Gosha Vojak, mm-hmm. Cheryl Thornton, um, from the tapestry workshop, we meet every every week and sort out the world for <laughs> a couple of hours. Uh, walking is a huge, huge part for me. Mm-hmm. Um, going to Cinematheque on Wednesday night is a huge part for me. And then I think probably now, instead of always just making big bodies of work, so whether it was an exhibition for them to go to or not, I always just was making work. So if you had, you know, paid work on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, studio was absolutely Monday, Tuesday, Saturday, and often Sunday. But that's really not my life now. I tend to be more project-orientated. So, for instance, I had two months, uh, I did a residency with Gosha, Vojak at the Tapestry Workshop. So I went there three days a week. Um, and that was fantastic. And I'm still working on finishing. We both finished working on finishing that off. Mm. So we meet regularly mm. to do that. And then I was in a show at um, Craft Victoria and I decided I wanted to make a new work because they were showing older work. So I decided I needed to make a new work to go with that. So, you know, I did that. Mm-hmm. And then the Kate Derham Award that's just on at the Tapestry Workshop at the moment. Mm-hmm. I was just, I'd always organised that before mm-hmm. or been on the selection panel mm. and I just decided that I was going to finish off this little tapestry mm. that had been on a loom forever. <laughs> um, and I did and then I realised just how much it links to these drawings that I want to do more of. Mm. Um, so that's, well, I think it's very much taking me into mm. the mm-hmm. next thing where I will be away from almost six months. Mm. And I hope that something re- reasonably substantial, mm-hmm. albeit tiny, I'm wondering if you could share some of your more influential resources that um, have helped you in your practice or that yeah. you have come across. I, again, was thinking about that and, of course... Um, the people are incredibly important mm. and we will all have a list of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms, and one person, I think, just it, to be helpful for people listening to this podcast, I think, is anything that Kay Lawrence has done or written, <laughs> uh, particularly for people interested in, in um, ideas around textiles. And another person is Jessica Hemmings and she's... Uh, I think it's quite complicated. She might have been Ameri- born in America, I think. But she has worked in Ireland and the UK, and I think she's now in Sweden or Denmark, mm-hmm. and she has written a lot about So she's an academic. She's not a practising artist and textiles. She wrote a book not so long ago, or oh, maybe five years ago, called The Textile Reader, mm-hmm. and there's a chapter I'm, I'm referred to in that chapter. But I think just anything she does mm. is worth following up on because mm. I think she's a really interesting thinker mm. and, you know, does actually end up working in all these extraordinary 
um, art schools or um, organisations where she's there as absolutely as a, a, th- a think what I would call a think a thinker. Mm-hmm. So those two, and then um, I brought a book with me here which had a huge huge impact on the way I saw my practice and gave me permission I think we all need but Helen Maudsley talks a lot about being given permission Mm -hmm. and this book um, catalogue and it's called Sense and Sensibility Women Artists and Minimalism in the 90s and it was a show that was at the Museum of Modern Art in New York and it was curated by a woman called Lynn Zalavansky. And there's just a fantastic essay in there that just gave me permission. Yeah. I don't know how I, that I need to say much more yeah, than that, no. really. I think just advise you, I think you might put a picture up. On, yeah, I'll definitely put a yeah. picture on it, uh, Instagram. Um, mind you, I haven't read it for a long time, so I've <laughs> <laughs> but it certainly was very important. Another book that was really important to me and gave me a lot of titles, and again, this was in the early 90s, was a book by Paul Carter, and I used to read a lot of work uh, that had been written by Paul Carter, who went on to do a lot of curatorial work, uh, academic, English, actually born in 1951, the same as me. I don't know if he still lives in Melbourne. I'm not sure. But he wrote a book. Um, well, he used to write. He wrote specifically, again, about the the migrant condition of the English. Mm. So that on one side you're very privileged, but on the other side it's still a huge displacement to come from another country mm. to another country. So, again... That kind of gave me a bit of permission too to feel that it was all right to talk about that. But again, that was in the 90s. I probably wouldn't do it now. Mm. Um, And he wrote a book called Baroque Memories and the main character was Nostalgia and it was set (laughs) sort of in um, Lecce down on the hill of Italy. And I took um, titles of my work. One was um, The Roundedness of Return, so that idea that you can never go back to the same actual same spot that mm. you started from and I made a huge series uh, with that title mm. and then there was another title called Lightness of Attachment and that came from a phrase where he said that lightness of attachment is an excellent cure for displacement so again that idea that if you're a migrant do you hanker after the past or do you cut it off completely in a way to be able to survive in your new um, environment and country. So I found all of his writing at that time, this is in the early 90s, really, really interesting and really relevant to my practice. Uh, Really, yeah. And then then I've got two more written here. Another really important book, which I don't know how easy it is to get, but now this is definitely out of print, was a, a book that came out in, I think it was 1974, called Beyond Craft, the Art Fabric. Mm. And it uh, was um, sort of like, it, it had a, a page of uh, the artists and their background and then a, a page of their work. And it was people like Magdalena Avakanovitz, 
uh, Lenore Tawney, who's had a huge influence on my practice. And I met her in New York once. It was just <laughs> one of the most magical moments <laughs> of my life. It'll take a whole other podcast to do um, Sheila Hicks, who interestingly has got a huge presence now. I don't think I was ever quite as interested in her, her work. Um, but I think it's it's very interesting work. And I was thinking about it today that I was interested in Weaver's, Weaver's work, but doing big, experiment, like huge, extraordinary mm. stuff. And a Colombian artist called Olga Damaral, and they had work of Lenore Tawney's and um, Olga Damaral in um, the Tate Modern last year when they had a big Annie Albers show. Mm. So anything that Annie Albers... Has written is interesting mm-hmm. in its way. It's often quite technical. Mm-hmm. And then you've probably been reading this woman for years, but I just discovered her totally independently. I always <laughs> think it's lovely if you do that. <laughs> um, in Lisbon, they've got a, a travel bookshop and it's half full with a, a Lonely Planet. And then it's got another lovely section that's just books. To, that incorporate aspects of travel. Mm. So I got a Italo Calvino and I got a Graham Greene, the Orient Express, mm. and I got the Rebecca Solnit, the Faraway Nearby. Ooh. And that to me is the right. most extraordinary book I've read for a long time. And it's so full of textile references and mm. metaphors and... Um, when I was doing the residency with Gosha, I was taking it in every day and reading passages mm. to mm. her as we wove. I thought, um, I think, and I've um, read more of her since, but that particular book was overwhelming, really. Mm. In, but it had all sorts of things. I mean, it talked about her mother who had Alzheimer's, so very personal stuff as well as yeah. that sort of whole, the way textiles is being referenced so much now or used as metaphor. Yes. Um, you know, mm. tapestry was always, the tapestry of life was always there. But mm. more <laughs> and more you read so many things, but all from also advertising and, you know, the weave of this or the... Yeah. <laughs> it's so interesting the way it's just permeated the world. I mean, mm. certainly the art, mm-hmm. well, well, aspects of the art world. Mm. Yeah, mm. so they, they're the ones that I've written down anyway. Mm. Um, and then, as I said before, I love it. I do love Instagram. Yeah, yeah. I get a lot from it. I yeah. get a huge amount from it. Do you mind sharing your Instagram handle if anyone no, wants to follow? No, it's completely fine. So yeah. that's um, slindsay.daytoday. Mm-hmm. And I actually have another one okay. called skirts. So that's this photographic project that I've been doing now for a long time and it's called The Presence of Women and gradually um, people are writing about it mm. and I'm putting it up and maybe I'll make some books or who knows. Cool. But it's a work mm. in progress. Mm. But it's very much about um, the presence of, well, it's about a lot of things. Yeah. But the first thing that I see is the textile. Mm-hmm. Then I see the um, sort of location mm-hmm. and then it's very much about the move. So someone's written, loves the movement. Mm-hmm. So it's written about the idea of the step. Mm-hmm. But I'm interested in the waiting ones, the still ones, the mm-hmm. blurry ones. Um, so if you if you were going to give some advice to somebody who was, you know, just starting out in their career or just embarking on their artistic journey now, what um, what advice would you give them? 
I think this is a difficult one, but I think there are a few few things. And fundamentally, I'd say go with your gut feeling. Don't be swayed too much by other people. Of course, invite, comment and share ideas. But often it's quite hard early on when you think, oh, I'm not very confident. But often we just do have gut feelings about whether things are working or whether they relate to our interests. Uh, I would also say that there are lots of art worlds. Mm. So, and more and more there are lots of art worlds and that whole idea of the sort of triangular pinnacle at the top is is right for some people, but actually it's not right for most people. And it's hard. It's really hard. And um, so I think... Uh, Think laterally. Don't be afraid of taking lateral steps um, because you never know what you find around the corner. Mm. Um, and just remain very open and read, 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 read. I know <laughs> we don't, I don't read nearly mm. enough now. Look, look, look. And, um, and, and not just about art. Uh, but try and remain as open as possible and don't get too weighed down by other people's opinions. Mm, that's great advice. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's a beautiful um, point to end mm. on, I think. So thanks so much for joining us in the studio yeah, today, Thank Sarah. you. It's been a great pleasure and I hope that uh, it makes sense. <laughs> oh, it was wonderful to hear, so thank you. Thank you both very much. This episode is recorded on the sovereign land of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Wurundjeri people, and pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. Thanks for listening to ProPrac. You can listen to other episodes and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can stay up to date with what we're up to on Instagram at ProPrac Podcast or send us an email at propracpod at gmail.com.